So here it is, Merry Christmas, and we have a Christmas-themed edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, and this is it. I shall unwrap it for you right about now. We're at the Royal Exchange Theatre. We've been here before as I walked past uh, the Christmas market is up. So we're talking about, uh, well, sort of Christmas and last, last, last Christmas. So I'm going to ask my latest victim in between shows, which is very kind of her to squeeze us in, um, who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Hello, my name is Maureen Beattie and I'm currently at the Royal Exchange uh, playing in Death of a Salesman. I'm playing Linda Lohman and uh, I uh, appeared in a Doctor Who Christmas special. Now you'll be able to tell me, Toby. 2014. Thank you. Go blind. I thought it was yesterday. Yeah, I don't. I know, it's a nightmare. So I was in a Christmas special um, 2014. So how did that come about? How did you end up being? Uh, well, I just—it was nothing um, spectacular or special or magical. It was just um, my agent gave me a call and said they want to see you for this part in this uh, Christmas special, and I went up to meet them. I met the director and the producer. They were completely delightful, and um, then I got a phone call saying that I'd got the part. So it was really, really simple. <laughs> and did you know? And it's a terrible thing to ask one Scottish actor about another Scottish actor. <laughs> did you know Peter Capaldi? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Peter's, Peter's a bit of a legend. I mean, he's a legend anyway. He's a legend all over the world now, of course. But he's a, certainly a legend and has been a legend in Scotland for very, very many years. I mean, I'm not, I don't know Peter hugely well. I mean, he's not somebody I see on a, reg, on a daily basis, but he and his wife Elaine are friends. And um, he was such a great, I mean, there's been fabulous doctors, but he was such a great doctor, wasn't he? And he was kind of at the top of his game when I was working with him. So it was fabulous. It's difficult. I mean, I, I always think about an actor doing that. It's not just playing the part. It's the responsibility you have as a leading oh. leading performer in a big show like yeah. that. It must be extraordinary. Absolutely. And their workload for uh, the doctors and their assistants. I mean, I was staggered by how much hard work it... Because it really... It, there's not an awful lot of stuff going on that they're not in, particularly the doctor. Um, and they create the most extraordinary atmosphere... Um, there, it, I would describe it as like doing old-fashioned telly. I graduated from drama school in Scotland in 1974, and in those days, in those days, but um, the, there was time to rehearse. You know, when you were doing a television, you, you got time to rehearse, properly rehearse, and discuss what you were going to do before you even started filming. And then when you got into the set, you you had more time to do that. And there was time to talk about the dialogue. And obviously with, with the Doctor Who and the kind of script writers that they have, you don't change anything really because it's perfect already. But there was a chance to do that. And, and um, that's gone so much in so much of our business now as you probably know yourself Toby you you know you literally you hit the ground running you barely get a chance to do a camera rehearsal if you do you're lucky and then you so you need to know your lines like somebody hit you over the back of a dead cat you could still talk you know um, and it was just that lovely thing of of the respect given to every single person on that shoot um which, as you can imagine, was lengthy because it was a special with huge amounts of special effects. Um, and 
just just that feeling that every single person, all the technicians, all the the, the people at myself, the actors in it, the the leads, that everyone was given respect and treated well, and and it was it was just it was it was an all round absolutely fantastic experience. I really I'm not just saying that because we're talking about it. It was wonderful. It's interesting because the majority I've interviewed about two hundred and fifty people for this, yeah, yeah. which is my, the majority of them were people who were in Doctor Who back in the day, uh, yeah, the sixties, yeah. seventies, and a lot of them are not acting anymore. Uh-huh. You know, just because you know time being what it is, or the or the profession, and, and a lot of them sort of lament the loss of that way of doing things. Yeah. You know, multi camera studio a week's rehearsal at the Acton Hilton, all of those things. <laughs> Rep, all of those things yeah. that actors don't have now. Mm-hmm. Now, do audiences miss out? Or is it just us being nostalgic for a way of doing things that was easier for us? Or do you think the way that acting is done now, particularly television, that we don't have the preparation and the rehearsal time? Never mind the camaraderie that the actors might have. Mm-hmm. Go hang the actors. What about the audience? Do they, do they miss out on anything performance? I think you? they absolutely do. I think they miss out on all kinds of things. They miss out on performances because you can't... It's very difficult to have to, to conjure up a very deep and multi-layered performance when you haven't had a chance to speak your dialogue with another actor, the person you're working with or the people that you're working with. But I would also say it comes down to things like very flat camera work only because not because the camera people are, are you know are, are not talented massively talented sometimes but there is no time to set up individual shots so what you get is you get a flat shot with three actors in it and the actors are doing that thing of moving in and out of frame not frame but moving in and out of a plane so that the person who's speaking's face is facing the camera and then they will move slightly so that the ne- the person they're talking now is next to speak is facing the camera and that's all to do with saving time. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've been involved in... in, in uh, I won't name them because I don't really want it to... It's not about people are doing... Every, everybody's doing their best. But there's, there's, there's a particular show that I was involved in, which is done so quickly that I literally... Um, and I, the, the first scene I was playing on the first day, which was the following morning, first thing, was uh, a reconciliation scene between myself and my young lover... Um, and I had I was an older woman and, and he wanted to take me back to Australia with him and because and, he loved me dearly and I was like no no I can't because of my, my husband my dead husband's body you see it was all very dramatic and everything there was this huge reconciliation scene which we were starting off with first thing <laughs> in the morning and I'd never met this lad and he'd never met me so I contacted him through his agent and I said look you know absolutely get it if you don't want if you're not interested in this but you know do you fancy get to the hotel earlier we'll have a drink in the bar or whatever and we'll just run the lines even if it's just that and we've actually shake, you know, shaken each other's hands and gone oh that's what you look like and he was so up for it which was wonderful so we did that but if we hadn't done that literally they were so far behind schedule when we came to do it that the director who I had never met grasped me by the arm and went right so here so you're coming over here and you're going to stand here and you're going to say that line and he's going to come around here in this van and you're going to and then the camera will be, and I was like it was, it was just and I thought, thank goodness I did that. So that's not a complaint. It's a, it's an observation to say that that's 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 like one end of the spectrum, mm. and the Doctor Who experiences the other. And if you, I, I mean, I haven't done, a, a, a well, I have actually. That's not, that's not true. In recent times, if you do one of the big, um, world famous, um, you know, sold all over the world, hugely popular, you know, lots of money being put into it because lots of money can be made. If you're doing those series, there is time given. There really is. But the kind of quick dash, you know, whatever, um, and, and, and as I say, that experience I just recounted is one end of it. 
and then you've got the wonderful thing. And the difference is just, you know, watching somebody like Peter, you know, on, on several takes because different things like somebody saying, I'm not quite sure that colour's quite right or maybe the camera, there's a bit of a shine there and all those things that you can really take on board and make each shot perfect. With each time we did it, Peter's performance was slightly more nuanced. It was fantastic to start with, but he was he just he got better and better and better and better. And it was just terrific, you know, to see that. Well, as as I'm sure did we. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would absolutely say that audiences are missing out. But of course, back at, I mean I was in casualty for a, a year and a half at one mm -hmm. point, and we peaked um, uh, uh, our best selling episode, if you like peaked at 17 million viewers. That's 17 million people turning on at the time, not, not recording it and what actually at the time to watch this programme. Uh, but of course, there was no competition. The, the competition then was, what, three other television channels or four or maybe five maximum. And now, as we all know, the competition for, 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 for getting those eyes on your product is so massive. So that's, of course, one of the driving forces behind it. Whereas, but you've got Doctor Who then you know, you, you're on to a winner and as long as you look after that precious jewel and it is being looked after, uh, well, that's certainly in my experience, then it's going to be okay. Funny enough, your first episode of Casualty was directed by Michael Owen Morris, who yeah. directed some Doctor Who back in the day. Oh, right. I think his first directing job was a, was, was a Peter Davison Doctor oh, Who. Oh, very <laughs> so good. It's, it's, it's always been a training ground. I remember him, I do. Um, so, and of course, it's funny, I was walking here in, it's November and slightly churlish about the Christmas markets because it's November. You're making a Christmas special in September, so... Oh, yes, no, absolutely, yeah. But it's not going out till Christmas <laughs> no. time, which is very good. Yeah. Was, there, was there extra... I mean, were you, were you aware that, you, that there was sort of extra attention being given to it because it was a Christmas special? Well, I mean, I, I've never done another Doctor Who, so I don't know, but, I mean, I just got the impression, as I say, that it was... It, the people involved were aware of the fact that they had something absolutely fantastic on their hands and they were going to move heaven and earth to keep it fantastic. And I suspect that that's true of every single episode that's made. And a bit of history as well, because uh, Michael Troughton was in it and his dad had been That's too. right. And you worked with David. In, yeah. on, he was your Toby Belch. He certainly was in The Twelfth Night we yeah. did. And David's done this, this interview. I'm sure he has. Well. He's so, great, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic. So yeah. that's quite a nice link with the It certainly the is. Family. It certainly is. And of course we had... Nick Frost playing, uh, playing Nicholas, Father Nick, you know, from Saint yeah. Nicholas. It was all very kind of, you know, strange. Yeah, he was quite a casting coup. He was fantastic. Oh yeah, and he was so wonderful in it, wasn't he? Yeah, just a brilliant performance. Yeah, it was great. I'd have to tell you also about it that um, we, uh, because our storyline, the, the characters we played, the, we were these technicians who where, well, I won't give it away in case people haven't seen it and they, they eventually Oh, no, if, they, if, if, they, if they're listening to this before they've seen it, it's their own fault. We, oh, can, okay. we can do spoilers after four years. Oh, OK, fine. Listen away now if you're this <laughs> No, just to say that, you know, these, these people, um, they're a group of people who you think, to start with, are um, scientists, um, geologists who are doing deep work in the, um, the Antarctic. No, the Arct Arctic, Antarctic? I can't remember now. One of the other... One of the poles. And... Um, and but little uh, unbeknownst to them, they have actually been overtaken by these mind-eating monsters. So we were. Um, why did I start to tell you that? Because well, because you were going to tell me something about. Oh yes, the yes. Ending. What was I going to tell you about? I don't know because you, say. Oh yes, yes, yes. I remember. Sorry, sorry. Yes, I remember now. So basically, um, so so our stories w w was all in the Arctic, or um, well, we had a fabulous time doing a um, CGI. 
uh, on a sleigh, which you'll remember. Oh my goodness, that was so wonderful to do that. But um, mostly it was in, in the unit that we were supposed to be in, in, the, in on the pole um, and out in the, you know, the vasty wastes and everything like that. But we, none of us ever got into the TARDIS. So we were very, very upset about that. So we eventually we said, look, you know, now look, I, what, it, what, when was it 2014 you said? Yeah, yeah. So I was 61. So that's fairly mature, really. So I, but I was like a child. And, we, and I went to this guy and I said, is it possible for us to go into the TARDIS? And he went, oh, oh I'm sure that's fine because it's in another you know, unit next door. So in we went, they opened it up for us and put the lights on in the unit and everything like that. And, and he said, he could see us all, these people running around in the TARDIS going, oh my God, I'm in the TARDIS, that's fantastic. And he said, um, do you want me to turn the lights on? <laughs> and he went, oh, yeah. So he turned it, you know, and all those flashing lights and everything like that. He said, I can't do you the music, I'm afraid. So we all did. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic because it's such a part of, you know, and I, remem- I remember the very first ever episode of Doctor Who. Really? Of course I do, absolutely. And, and I, at that point, my family were living in, we'd just mo- newly moved to a big terraced, Victorian terraced house in Glasgow. And I thought, oh, thank goodness, because there's steps up to the front door. And I thought, well, the, the Daleks won't be able to get up the, to the thing. And then I went, oh, but the basement. Oh, no, they'll be able to get in the basement. So I ran down to the basement. But fortunately, there was a lip on the basement door. And I thought I was all right, because in those days, of course, the tar- they couldn't fly. No. The, the Daleks had to, had to have a completely smooth surface. So I was like, that. that's okay, I'm I mean, of course, you know, I knew they weren't real, but equally, they were terrifying, weren't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. And so did you know that it started the day after the assassination of President Kennedy? God, no, I no, must have known that at the time, yeah. but I've forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, let's, well, let's move away from Doctor Who, because these things are frequently, uh, uh, you know, fascinating when we do. And I th- and so we'll, well, we'll start with, you. so you come from, was it inevitable, because you come from... You cut, it's in the blood, isn't it? Uh, well, my father um, retired now, but only retired. He's ninety. He just turned ninety-two. He retired six years ago when he was eighty-six, and he started. Yeah, amazing. He started as an actor, then he became a comedian, variety artist, and he did that most of his career. And then about what would be well for thirteen years at the end of his career before he retired, he was the kind of patriarch character in our Scottish soap opera, um, which is called River City. So he was in that. And yeah, so, and my mother, um, who's been dead for many years now, but she was a model and ran a model agency back in the day when, you know, model, um, you know, fashion shows were incredible. Well, they still are at the top end, but those days, all fashion shows were really very theatrical. So it was kind of coming at me at both sides, really. And, and you'd start, you did a couple of episodes of This Man Craig, was that... Was that yes, when, when I was but a child, yeah. that's right, yeah. My first ever words on television were... I was so nervous about it because you know when you actually you know, I often say to younger actors I said you know seriously it's easier to play you know Hamlet than it is to play somebody who's got to wait in the wings and come on and say there is my lord a lady at the gate desires to speak with you or whatever it might be because you are so convinced that you're going to walk on and ruin this magnificent piece of work because you are you know it's terrifying so anyway my first words were my line was and it was the only line I had in the episode to be Miss Duncan. And you can do all sorts of things with those five syllables. Well, she said, no, she said to me, what class are you? And I had to look very scared and say, to be Miss Duncan. I was like, oh, I can't tell you. I can remember it now. Yeah. And when actually, just talking generally, I, my first words on a professional stage after drama school were the time-honoured, you rang my lady. Really? Literally, but I got to do it in a French accent. So I thought, hey, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an absolute kind of, I'm a cut and dried typical case. Well, it's funny, that line you said about um, 
uh, somebody's at the gate and desires yeah, to yeah, yeah. the first that I was the merchant of Venice Manfred Antonio says my master Antonio is at his house and desires to speak with yeah. you both that was my first there you go. in professional theatre there you go <laughs> yeah so there we yeah. are so uh, now so I tell you uh, just on you, this subject sorry no worry but um, just at lines you have to say first year at drama school um the first years always helped the third years out with their Shakespeare because there was too many characters in it. The, obviously, the third years got all the big parts. But because I was a tall girl, and as you can hear, speaking a, a deep voice, I got to play one of the male servants. And I got to, <laughs> to say, I talk about baptism by fire, I got to say that in that famous line, the Duke of Cornwall's dead, slain by his servant while putting out the other eye of Gloucester. <laughs> which, I, which I like to think I did with a plum. But, uh, sorry, just, that just popped into my head there. Oh, beautiful. Um, so, uh, w- was there any question that you would have done anything else to? Uh, no, I mean, I, I did the usual thing. I mean, I, I went to a convent school, so I wanted to be a nun at one point, and, um, you know, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. I can't think of any wee girl I've ever met who didn't want to be a ballet dancer. Then I wanted to be a vet, and I found out that you needed to have something like 19 hires, because, you know, in Scotland we have... O levels, and then we have hires, and then we have A levels. So there's a kind of hires thing in the middle. Oh, that's far too much hard work. Um, and by from the age of about ten, that was when I started to really want to be an actor, be a performer, and started to learn speeches from Shakespeare for the sheer joy of it. So that was a kind of a that was a that was a pointer. <laughs> and then there's a, then there's the, the the thing that I've I've got lots of um, Scottish actor friends, mm. and some of them are you know, London-based, and, yep. were, and some of them are Scottish actors who, you yeah. know, who stay in Scotland and yeah. have a very good career. Was that, was that a dilemma? Do you, do you, you know, was about whether you base yourself in Scotland and do all the work up there or... Uh, well, well, it, wasn't, it, it didn't feel like a dilemma to me. It just felt like, you know, it was fantastic. I left drama school and pretty much touching wood. Uh, I worked... Um, you know, just all the time, it was fantastic, um, and was mentored by a wonderful man called Stephen MacDonald, who ran, first of all, Dundee Rep, and then he ran the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh for three years, and I went in to the company as the kind of young leading lady, and, um, you know, he was, he gave me such good chances, it was just amazing the stuff I was getting to do, really fabulous, and doing some telework as well, um, and uh, I... And then what I did was I just wanted to spread my wings a bit because I, uh, you know, I was I was young. I mean, I was in my what twenties, you know, and and I just thought, God, I'd really like to give it a go to just see what the world outside Scotland's like. But you know, some people didn't want to do that, and that's absolutely fine as well. It's up to the individual. I didn't have any kids to bring up. I, you know, I didn't have to worry about anybody but myself. That's another consideration, you know. Um, and then I went down to London and I got digs, obviously, and I stayed. About a year and a half, I went. I kept going back up to Scotland to work because obviously you've got to earn a buck. Uh, it was waitering, barmaiding, all the stuff that everybody's done. And then I got my first job, which was not playing in London, but it rehearsed in London. And that kind of cracked the nut, really kind of for me. And then it went on a tour of England and Scotland and, and Ireland. And then very slowly but surely work started to come in in London. But while that was happening to me, something very interesting, of course, is has happened in the business, I was talking to somebody about this today, that um, when, I, when I left drama school, if you, went, if you were working in Scotland and you were doing any of the, the great, you know, like the, the, the classic plays at Shakespeare, you were doing, um, you know, any of the, like Racine or Moliere, or you were doing the Russians, Ibsen, Chekhov, any of those, any of those classic plays, um, you did them with a cut glass English accent. 
It was absolutely de rigueur. You, there's no way. You might have a servant type person who might do a Scottish accent, but even then, often the servants would, would do a sort of strange Morshets sort of accent like that. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, that. why are you doing that? Why aren't you speaking with your ordinary accent? But we, that was what we did. That, that was what you did. And, and when I came down to London, if I wanted to be taken um, in terms of somebody employing me in a part that was not Scottish, so I went into, as many, many of my friends and colleagues did, went into every audition and every meeting speaking with, a, with, a, with an English accent because otherwise what happened was they went, right, okay, they're very nice. But people would say, uh, well, look, we'll get in touch with you if ever we have any Scottish parts. Um, and of course, Scottish parts were people who were either being beaten up or beating people up, <laughs> had, were drinking too much, taking too many drugs or both or all three of those things you know it was all that kind of stuff you, you never you never really got a scot you never got a scottish part somebody who was doing well and looked quite healthy um so that you had to do that so interestingly enough just at the point when i was going down i think that was just beginning to change and now you know i can't remember the last time i used my and, and i absolutely think it's great that actors can put on use their their, their tool the tool of their voice to do different i mean we're playing american in, in mm. death of a salesman at the moment that's great um and i see no reason why that has to be a, a cast of americans it's got we've got all sorts of different accents in there but we're all playing in the same place and as, as i must accept that people who are not scottish get to play scots of course um but in terms of that thing of like i would have been expected to be english I now can't remember the last time I played with an English accent because you just go, well, why can't she be Scottish? Well, mm. She just would be. I mean, I was in The Ferryman, if anyone knows The Ferryman mm. in, the, in the West End, and, you you know, you, they're all Irish. you just got to be Irish. You can't, you know, it would be completely, it would be a different family. You'd be telling a completely different story. So I mean, why is there a Scottish auntie? <laughs> you know, so of course there's, there's times when you want to do that, but in terms of generally... So it's a massive change. And I think that's all part, to answer your question, of the feeling of going down to London and was that a dilemma and everything like that. For me, it was just a case of spreading my wings and seeing what was going on out there and challenging myself as well. Well, and you've done an extraordinary career in the in the classic. In fact, I was inspired to act by the Scottish play. And <laughs> the first production of it I saw was the one with Miles Anderson, which you oh, were yes. in at the, at the RSC. That's right, yes, yes. went to that yes. on a school trip. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and then, interestingly, you did... You did the history cycle much, yeah. much later, which has the opposite of what we were talking about with the fast turnaround of television, yeah. is that you were an ensemble company yeah. who did all of Shakespeare's history of plays yeah. with the same cast going through. Absolutely that amazing. Have, what a milestone. That must oh, be it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. A hundred years of history, literally. And of course, as you know, we did the, we did the golden uh, uh, moment, the golden ticket uh, thing, which was, and um, I remember... Which was we we did we did two in two day two lots of the golden moment in Stratford and we did two when we took it to the Roundhouse in London, and the first one was the chronological the order in which Shakespeare wrote them, which was the Henry the Sixth's first, followed by Richard the Third and then he went and he wrote Richard the Second and Henry the Fourth Part One and Two and Henry the Fifth, so we did that first. But the the big golden moment thing, the golden ticket, was when we did the the, the actual plays in, in the order of kings and um, the marketing department said well I think we're going to do a special ticket for this and we're going to sell it at 500 pounds a seat and um, you'll get your dedicated seat and it, you'll get a little talk from Michael Boyd you'll get to meet the odd actor blah, 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 and, and apparently Michael went 
500, nobody's gonna buy that. It was like being a rock star. Literally, it hit the internet and it was gone. gone. People came from Japan, from Australia, from America, from all over the world to see it because it was not gonna happen again in their mm. lifetime. It was, uh, and the, uh, from an acting point of view, getting to know a company in that way. Um, Tom Hodgkins, who is, as you know, is, is, is in this show as well. He, he, he was in it with me. Uh, and funnily enough, Julius De Silva, who was also in that company, is playing Max Bialystok in um, the next, well, not the next production up, but the Christmas production, The Producers. <laughs> so he was in it as well, so fantastic. So we've all come back together. But um, yes, that was an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary experience. Well, David Warner, uh, well, David, David joined us later because what, what Michael was aware of the fact that it would be good to get some new blood in sort of halfway through just to kind of, you know, yes, and also there were more parts and you had to, and everybody was guaranteed a show off because you just couldn't do eight shows and a lot of people had a lot to do. So that then it was, so I think we got six new members of the cast and David was one of them. But David did, um, you know, everybody had, everybody had to understudy and everybody had to do, um, you know, another role as well as the kind of main role, which David did as well, because that was a... Because when I, when I heard he was going to be in it, I was like, that, yeah, that'll be right. And he went, no, 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 that, that, we've stuck to our guns. You wow. Know? Yeah, so it was really good. Wow, we won't see his gentleman. Oh, we have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and Jeff Stretfield was my great chum at university. Oh, Jeff was so fantastic. He's great, isn't he? Did you, did you happen to see his? I didn't see that. Oh. I, was where I, was, I don't know why I didn't end up seeing it. I, was, I think I was doing things. But just his Hal, you know, he was just so fantastic. As Hal and then as Henry. Fabulous. Yeah. What a performance. And he's a lovely fellow. Uh, uh, delightful, delightful. Um, but look, we, we could talk all day about your My glittering career. career. Well, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and, and, um, but uh, what I think you have, of course, that nobody else I've interviewed has, and that is very pertinent and of great interest to the listeners, who you know have been devouring the actors I've been interviewing is that you are the president of the Actors Union. Equity. I am the president of Equity. <laughs> so um, why why put yourself forward? Why do that? God knows. <laughs> oh Lord. Um, well, I um, was always shooting my mouth off about how important it was to be a member of Equity, because of course when I was joining the business, you had to have a ticket. It was that terrible thing that many of the older older viewers, um, but we'll know about, which was if you didn't have a job, you couldn't get an equity card, and if you didn't have an equity card, you couldn't get a job. There were so few of them about. It was, as somebody described it to me the other day, Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Um, I was incredibly lucky. I got my equity card before I went to drama school, which was just, so as soon as I was leaving, somebody went, oh, you've got already, come and work for me. I mean, it was an incredible advantage. Um, so I was very aware of that. My father, and this is a story I used to tell a lot in companies where there were people who, um, you know, weren't members uh, when you no longer had to be. Uh, apart from saying, and this is, I, I still, I stick by this. If you are not a member of equity and you, but you take all the advantages that the equity members have paid for, if you take the, the right to have an equity pension, um, which is an amazing thing because it literally, there was n nothing like that uh, before that you can literally go into to a company. And you know, when I was, funnily enough, I'll just say that, when I was doing the Octology, which was about two years and three months, every week I put 12 pounds of my, my wages into that, that account and the RSC put 24 pounds in that I would never have seen, simply not seen. That's a, I mean, that, I had no money in any, it, 
what a lovely little pot of something just you know just for a rainy day anyway that was paid for by equity members the becks british equity collection society wouldn't exist if it wasn't for equity members there are so many things like that terms and conditions you may want better terms and conditions but by god there'd be a hell of a lot worse if it wasn't for de equity being around so i used to say to people well that's absolutely fine and i used to take a fiver out of my back pocket and give it to somebody and say well there you are and they would go why are you giving me that i said well you might as well take it out of my hand because you're actually taking it off me i am paying for you to i was, I was quite, trying to be quite light-hearted about it but together we are stronger than what we i i was um, i went down to london um that was an interesting day in terms of fatigue but i went down to london to chair the the latest um council meeting and um why did I start to tell you that? Fatigue, you see, I haven't quite recovered. Um, I went down to London and said, oh yes, and, and, and we got the announcement that we are now over 45,000 members. It's fantastic. So that, that's really important. But the story I used to tell was that my father, when he was just starting out in the business, he used to be, he, he started as a, a, a spark on the, um, the big shipyards in Glasgow, um, uh, an apprentice electrician, and then he got you know, a, a, a reputation of for being funny, did some amateur shows and everything like that, and he cut a long story short, blah, 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 started out in the business. My mother was the breadwinner then, she was, as I say, a model, famous, she was the one that was out opening shops and appearing in magazines and things like that, and she was the breadwinner. And my father got a gig um, in the winter time, heavy snowfall, and I'm, this is true, it's not, you know, I'm not making it up, heavy snowfall, and back then, and it was in um, one of the theatres down in Leith in Edinburgh, I can't remember the name of the theatre, doesn't exist anymore. So he got himself um, together. He went into Glasgow. Of course, in those days, the trains took forever, steam trains. Um, I was about, I think I was about six months old at the time. Steam train through to thing and then found, got managed to get his way through the slush and the snow and the freezing cold to this theatre. And on the stage door was a note saying, uh, go home, uh, insufficient bookings. And there was a, in, in that contract in those days, there was a no play, no pay con um, clause, which meant that, that that entire journey of my father's and all that trouble and the money he had spent completely wasted and there was no comeback. And then, of course, in those days, there was a thing called the Variety Artists Federation, which has now been completely subsumed, some say, but actually it's been incorporated into equity. And, um, and you know, Variety members are so important to us. It's our, it's our history and the way that Variety is evolving is fantastic. And we've got circus performers, all that stuff. It's, it's thrilling. But so that got my father interested and he went, right, we've got it. So he joined the Variety Artists Federation and then he started to lobby people to get, he said, you know, we've got a lot of us, we can, we can change things. And then of course, equity came along and they joined together and everything like that. So I was always banging on about this and eventually, you know, so many people said to me, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you formalize your passion for this? And I was like, no, no, I haven't got time, I haven't got time, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, um, a couple of dear friends um, kind of really kind of shoved me along. So I stood for council, got onto council, spent two years on council, and then coming up for the officers' elections. It was, it's been ve I've been very fast track. I'm still <laughs> learning as I run along, desperately trying to keep up. But um, so then I was vice president my second two years on council, and then they said, "Please, will you stand for president?" I said, "Stand for president? Stand for president? I barely know what it's like to be on council." No, no, no. You'd be really great. You'd be really great. so I went. Oh well, you know, with all the backing of all you fabulous people. So I stood for president and I was, I, nobody stood against me. So, but that's an interesting thing. So it was a great relief not to have to go around spending a lot of time canvassing people and doing all that. But it's not a mandate, really, because people get quite rightly say, well, I never voted for you. I didn't get a chance to vote for you. I didn't get a chance to vote against you. You're just there. So uh, it, it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag, you know.
Or you might have preferred if you'd actually had... Well, if I'd, I'm in a good, clean fight, yeah. you know, have a couple of hustings and, you know, have a person that can stand against me and, and you know, and, and, then, and then you make your answers and then people have a choice. I think the choice is very important. Um, but then again, you've got to have somebody who's willing to, to go, oh, my goodness me, I've actually won. I am going to be president, oh, dear. You know, um, yeah, you don't go into it lightly sort of thing. So uh, since I've become president... Of course, so I knew very early on because um, I wasn't being stood against. And then and Malcolm Sinclair, who, as you know, has been an absolutely fabulous president for what, eight years. And he's now a trustee, which is great because it means he's still there. Well, he, he was always there for me. But, you know, he's now there in a more formal way for me to go, help Because <laughs> he's so wonderfully passionate. But, you know, he, oh, he's great. He's, yeah. Um, such command and, and authority and such a knowledge of, of everything. But... Um, so I, it's a, it's a learning spiral as opposed to a learning curve. But I'm, I'm getting there, and I'm, I'm just having. I'm, I'm, the task is to balance it with the, because of course all these positions, a lot, some many members and many non-members don't know this. The president's not a paid post. Neither are the vice presidents, the, the honorary treasurer, who does an amazing job, Bryn, um, Bryn Evans. I mean, he is just fantastic, the job he's doing. He's not getting paid for that either. Um, so the, the job that puts bread on my table is here in this theatre. So it's balancing the two because in equity, because that's the case, your work that pays you comes first, always. So what are the biggest challenges facing the profession that you would think you that need addressing that you, you can, you can um, do something about? To, well, I mean, there are so many, as you know. Um, the deaf and disabled community are so badly represented in our world and they are 20% of the, um, of the, uh, um, the population of Britain, of, of, of the UK, um, would, would define themselves as disabled in some way. You might not be able to see it, but they are. And it's something like, it's something shameful, like 3% that are on our... Also backstage, you know, all that. Uh, of course, black and ethnic minorities, um, LGBT+, plus. I mean, oh my goodness, you know, older women, of which I am one, women in general. Uh, there's so many things. But if I was asked to give you an umbrella thing of what is wrong is an endemic lack of respect for what the workers in this industry do. An absolute lack of respect, it's appalling. Um, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, to, in order to keep us in our place, the thing of, oh, you've got to be careful how you talk to them because they're a bit like children, you know, they, they can react very badly. Excuse me, I'm 65, don't talk to me like a child who's badly behaved and not very bright. Mm, drives me nuts. And I watch it happen to other people. Um, now, of course, I don't care, so I just say. But, um, so that, and that partly comes out of, for me, the fact that the multinational conglomerates have gone, oh, this is excellent. Look at all these incredibly passionate people, very talented, beleaguered, very few work opportunities for vast numbers of people after those jobs. You, do you know what? You can employ them and you can pay them tons. You can pay them less and 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 you can pay your shareholders more and more and more. That is really frightening. That and the patriarchy. Because we are in re this is a scary time, isn't it? I, mean, I sound a bit like my latest magazine editorial um, now <laughs> because it's obviously on my mind. But, um, you know, what's happening, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm, not, I'm not preaching to anybody because all you guys know that, what I'm saying, but... It's really terrifying what's happening out there. This 
awful thing of the male-dominated culture. And, you know, this, this building we're in, which is run by a woman, Sarah Frankham, one of the reasons why this is one of the most inclusive, most respectful to everybody in the building, places I have ever worked in my life, is I'm absolutely convinced, because there's a woman running it. Now, listen, there's fantastic guys out there, but I'm sure you're one of them, who, I know, but get us and get, get the fact that, you know, it's very important and we need more women in, in, in positions of authority because we've got to change what's happening. I mean, Donald Trump is the president of America. I mean, it does not bear... This is a man who boasts about grabbing women's sexual organs and going, <laughs> about it. I mean, this is... this is. Oh, my God. So we've got to do everything we can, and that's, you know, I, on a personal level, just one of the things you've got to be... I've got to give about is not thinking about it too much because I just can't sleep <laughs> no, you, But you touched on something because when I started, certainly equity was a closed shop, so yeah. you had to, if you're hiring an actor, you had to abide by yeah. the rules. Now, if I say I don't want to do that job because the money's terrible, they'll go, well, we'll get that Absolutely. money Absolutely. the union. Yeah. So, I remember over way, a barrel in a way. Exactly. I remember way, way back, very dear friend of mine, not a star in that sense, but absolutely well, highly regarded um, actor, uh, did loads and loads of stuff, you know, playing like second leads on the telly, did a lot of theatre stuff, really great, very highly regarded, blah, 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 blah. Got a phone call from a director friend to say, I'm doing this, um, a series, whatever series on the telly, um, it's it's uh, just a couple of scenes, but it's a really nice couple of scenes, I'd love you to play it. You know, it was a direct phone call from Powell, and, and Peter said, well, fantastic, whatever. Gets a phone call from the um, agent because uh, the you know the, the the money people have been on the contracts department have been on, and it was I can't remember what it was it was the beginning of that awful thing and it says well that'll be four hundred pounds, and Peter went oh no 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 that's ridiculous go back, he came back and said no no it's four hundred pounds take it or leave it so he phoned his friend and he said, well they offered me four hundred quid and, and his friend went well do you know what. I can't argue for you. I haven't got a strong enough argument for you. So if you say no to that, they will just go to the next person on my list. And they will keep going along that list until somebody says yes to it. He said, that's your choice. And I can't remember now what my friend did, whether he went absolutely not, or whether, you know, he needed to eat and he said, yes, okay. Yeah. But it was that whole thing of just, there was a sea change that occurred. Um, yeah, so we've really got, we've all, if we're banding together, supporting one another, being there for one another, you know, absolutely essential, more and more. Well, I want you to have your supper and you've got to go back kind. on stage. Um, so I've got the final three, well, there's the final two questions, but but one, but because I have the president of equity and I know everyone listening to this, this is very important to, and most people don't care, but credits are too small and they go too quickly. And Correct. When, when Doctor Who used to be on, you'd get a single credit and you could read it. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be reversed, Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, I don't know whether that, we've been trying. We've really been trying. And they're like, no, 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 because you know that they do that split screen yeah. thing, and then it tells you what's coming back, because they're making money out of the next, and particularly the, 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 you know, the, the, the channels that rely on advertising. I mean, I mean, this is the other thing, gosh, how long have you got? But, you know, the BBC is so important. You know, the BBC gets slagged off all the time. We've got to hold on to it. It is a public service broadcaster. You know, people forget, you know, again, things get so about, so about money. You know, the Rupert Murdoch's of this world, they hate the BBC. They hate the BBC with a passion. They want it sliced to bits and, you know, and flushed down the loo because they... It's a, it's a competition that they can't, they can't step up to the plate on. I mean, you know, it's so, so precious. Um, you know, Nelson Mandela said, I would be dead if it wasn't for the BBC World Service. I would be dead. That, you know, that thing of saying, it, it, the BBC's motto is, 
Nation shall speak peace unto nation. I mean, we've got to get back to that. We've got to remember that that's the point of it. You know, I can't remember what his name was, the young man who was the kind of famous um, founder who was... Lord Yeah, and he said, that, what was it? Educate. Inform, educate and entertain. There you yeah. are. Inform, educate and entertain. And, you know, the BBC's been put in this terrible position of having to be some, you know, competing for, 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 for viewers. It's not about that. It's about the fact that you can have a public service broadcaster who can, who can give a little something to everybody, no matter what their interest that's, that's what we want, you know. I mean, when I first left drama school, again, um, you worked for the BBC for the quality and you worked for ITV for the money. I mean, I'm, you know, God, ITV are doing some fantastic stuff. Of course they are. But that was an absolute split in those days. So that's really... Um, yeah, I can't remember what your original question was. No, it's beautiful. And as I said, I've taken up more time than I said it was. So now, most people, I either buy lunch or supper or bring wine. You have said I cannot do that. Instead, I'm going to donate to the charity. The listeners, we encourage to donate to the charity anyway. Um, so would you tell me about your charity and, and why? I certainly it can. It's, it's a sort of, I don't know whether it's an official affiliate for, to equity, but obviously it's close to our hearts. Um, it's the International Performers Aid Trust. It's IPAC for short you can stick it in your google bar um, or whatever other bar you use um it's it gives money to theater makers in who are trying to make theater in impossible situations it gives money to people it's really very moving it gives money to people in palestine oh we are in a theater did you hear that um it, it gives money to people in Palestine. Can you imagine what it's like trying to make theatre in Palestine, particularly since their big, their biggest auditorium and arts centre has very, very recently been been embalmed. Um, Palestine, Syria. Can you imagine what it's like trying to make theatre in Syria? So they give money to places like that to try and help people to make theatre, and people are making theatres in cellars. They're making theatre. You know, they're doing plays in living rooms, in in you know, in churches, in temples, and and whatever, whatever. And that's what it is. And you know, the privilege I feel every night when I walk out onto that fabulous stage. Any of you here who are listening, who have either worked here at the Royal Exchange or or have been here to see a show, this fabulous auditorium in this amazing building being paid a proper living wage with a lovely dressing room. You know, when I'm warm and I've got a wonderful team helping with my costume and there are people in the world who are trying to who are desperate to make theatre who have literally nothing they've got you know a pile of mud and if they're lucky if they've got a bit of tin over their heads so if you possibly can every penny I know people always say this in charities every penny counts if you've got a, pe a pound to, to spare stick it in there and it will all be very much appreciated well, brilliant. And the final question is normally, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? But I've made a, a, a decision that we, because you are a star of a Christmas special, this is going to be the Christmas Who's round. So what's your Christmas message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Ah, Christmas message. Uh, keep up the good work. Be, um, be magical. Think outside the box. Do the best you can at all times. And rejoice in the fact that we've got the first female Doctor Who. Oh, brilliant. Well, I've loved this and thank you so much because we have overran massively. Maureen Beatty, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Uh, my thanks to Maureen, who really did give practically every minute she'd got in between two performances. And I know had to wolf down a jacket potato afterwards, so uh, how generous of her. Uh, I'm so glad we got uh, uh, somebody who can... Uh, speak of a very uh, interesting and important part of the acting profession, uh, the union. 
uh, her charity is actingforothers.co.uk. That's actingforothers.co.uk. If you could donate to that charity, I know Maureen would be very, very grateful. And she didn't even take the bottle of wine or meal usually proffered to uh, who's round victims. She said anything that uh, could be given anywhere, even uh, in lieu of that, uh, should be given to the charity. So uh, I have donated as well instead of what I would have normally spent on something comestible. Um, well, look, that's it. Um, there's going to be one more before the new year, I think. I hope so. Uh, it's all a bit up in the air, as these things are, because it's a busy time for all and sundry. And uh, Ian Atkins, who puts these online, I'm sure has a life to live, as well as audio files to wrangle that I send him at all hours. But um, I hope, if you're listening to this over the festive period, that you've had a marvellous one uh, and that uh, the rest of the season goes very well for you. And as you reflect on 2018, that it's been a marvellous year for you. And if it hasn't, that uh, the next one will be better. But as I say, I hope to speak to you one more time between uh, now and the new year but until then all it remains for me to say is uh, well incidentally a Merry Christmas to all of you at home ta-ta Coming soon from Big Finish Productions Doctor Who The Eighth Doctor Adventures Ravenous Volume 2. You don't know who the Krampus is? Why, he is the dark side of Christmas, the demon on the streets. And today is the day the Krampus runs. You must be terminated. Thumbs, the Vox, they're, they're grabbing people on the walkways, attacking them. Die, 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 die. They're my friends and they're in danger. Along with hundreds of others, that is our first priority. I feel normal. Tell me, what's normal again? You know, after everything, the Sonomancer, end of the universe, Rikerson. Well, we've usually got a doctor to get out of trouble. I've been to thousands of worlds, hundreds of thousands, seen sights beyond your imaginings, and yet I still think snow might be the most exciting thing ever to exist. Really? Woman, they call your name. The robots are waking one by one, and when they do, they're attacking. They'll kill us. Who? Who's here? I, 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 I don't even want to say the name. It might hear me. If it hears me, it might come. And if it comes, I'm dead. Who? The ravenous. Big finish. We love stories.